Thank you very much. Uh, you know, it's true that, that uh, I've been working with the financial sector for a, for a time, but honestly, as an economist from uh, the University of Copenhagen, my, my uh, thesis at the time, it's many, many years ago, as you could hear, uh, the first time I was here was in 1969 as a student. So um, at that time, I, um, I was very heavily involved in macroeconomics, and especially in golden rule theory for the welfare state. And what I did at that time was to make my thesis uh, by using Pontryagin's maximum principle to optimize the golden rule way. Now, my conclusion at that thesis was um, that with the instrument of uh, Pontryagin, it, you are capable of making uh, optimal conclusions and decisions if you know all you need to know. And that's the problem. If we get all the information we, we would like to have, uh, then we should, uh, in practice and theory, be capable of making the right conclusions and decisions. Now, do we have all the information about what's going on, on on the financial market? In a sense, yes. In, in another sense, no. But I think we know enough to make the right decisions. And let me try to, to, uh, to develop that thesis a bit uh, tonight here. First, you can easily understand with my background that my fundamental belief is that the real economy comes first, that the financial market uh, must be the servant of the real economy and not the master, which means that, that in my long life also as active politician and student, if you like, it has always been like that. I can even recall, dear students, at a time where it was so, so that the financial market was the servant of the real economy. At that time, uh, uh, I was active in politics in Denmark just before we decided to deregulate our financial markets. And I recall at that time that our vision was, okay, let's deregulate, but at the same time, let's now start on a voyage for cross-border regulation, for global regulation, if you, if you like. So in a sense, I think the progressives in Scandinavia, as a price to be paid for deregulation on the financial market, um, this price was formulated very clearly that we have to, when we deregulate nationally, we have to create some new common regulation to ensure uh, the right behavior and the right role of the financial market compared to the real economy. As you know, this never really happened in, in real terms, not in the sense I would like it to do, uh, we got Basel II, but, but I'll come back to that. We never got, you could say, mandatory uh, regulation in the sense I think is absolutely necessary. Now, my point of departure is therefore also the real economy when I try to, to, tonight to, to make some proposals on what to do on the financial market. I'm deeply, deeply concerned with the real economy, uh, dear students. We have, for the time being, in the European Union, 22 million unemployed people. That's around 9.5% unemployment in Europe. And if I look as an economist, and all I think we have of accessible data and, and prognosis, I think it's fair to say that we will probably have a sluggish growth in the next two, three, four years. By sluggish growth, I mean a growth which is lower than productivity and thereby implying that the unemployment will increase. 
So that's why, unfortunately, I fear that even taking care of the demographic challenge we have in our countries, the unemployment will increase. Next year, my judgment is it will increase to 30 million unemployed, uh, close to 11% unemployment in Europe. And that is, of course, only, quote, unquote, the registered unemployment. Behind that, you have figures, especially in Eastern and Central European countries, but also in the southern part of the continent, figures on, on non-registered unemployment, which make us uh, even more alarmed by seeing how, how immense loss of human um, capital we are running into and how incredible loss of at value in our societies we are risking. So the financial sector and its needed regulation has to be seen as a part of a new process, of a new perspective for the European Union as well as for the planet. We cannot deal with financial reforms without dealing with new ways of our macroeconomic economy and micro and the other way around. The financial sector and the real economy belongs together in a sense I just described. Now, the current financial crisis is certainly the worst we have had in living memory. We have had lots of bubbles, credit bubbles close to credit crunch. The latest one before this one was the dot-com crisis in 2000, 2001, as you recall. Before that, LTCM in 1998, uh, a big hedge fund collapsing in US with the risk of spreading to the world. So I'm not going, going through the whole history of bubbles and, and crisis we have had, but this one is certainly the worst of, of, of them all. Due to several facts, the one is globalization and the simple fact that never before have we seen a financial market so global as, as we see now. And never before have we seen so dramatic, uh, similar, no, so dramatic uh, coincidences of factors which led to this crisis. To understand um, how, how vast it is and how deep it is, you need to, to take on board the latest seven, eight years development globally. Uh, you will recall the IMF intervention in, in uh, Southeast economies and the enormous uh, strength it, they, were, they were obliged to take into strengthening their macroeconomics. And the consequences of that uh, from Southeast Asia was an enormous increase in, in savings. And this saving fled to Europe and to US. So we had suddenly created, just after the dot-com crisis in year 2000, we created a very, very generous liquidity and, and credit market. And we combined it at that time with incredibly low interest rates. So in, in the so-called golden age, they call it, uh, in the financial sector, you had the combination of extremely generous credit market and, and historically low interest rates. Now, here comes my first challenge and dilemma. How can we regulate in the future the financial market in such a way that when, hopefully, someday, we are going to have a new era of low interest rate and generous credit markets without running into a new credit bubble and a new credit crisis, you see. How can we solve this dilemma? Because evidently, low interest rate and generous credit is very good for the real economy also. So are we really crushing ourselves in saying, no, we should under no circumstances come back to this era because that will just be feeding up to a new credit bubble? So my first dilemma is we must solve this contradiction between what's good for the real economy don't necessarily have to be the born of a new bubble. 
This crisis revealed the extent of, you could say, the rot of the heart of modern finance. Excessive leverage, extreme risk-taking, opaque products, off-balance sheet operations that circumvented regulation and eroded capital reserves, and deceptive lending and fraud. The results, as you know, was that 7.1 trillion pounds worth of bank bailouts, enough to finance 1,779 pounds handout for every man and woman and children on the planet. People spoke of the debt, of the death of market fundamentalism, but, 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 those who heralded a new golden age of modern social democracy, making the market servant to the economy, as I said, and to the public interest, they spoke too soon, I'm afraid. They spoke too soon. When I listen to the financial markets major actors, I hear the BAP. The BAP is back to business. We are on our way out of the crisis. Why should we have regulation? Let's go back to business. So, financial regulation is still beholden to vested interests. So the fight for genuine reform will be tough for all those believe that business as usual is an affront to decency and to all those who seen their livelihoods destroyed as a result of this crisis. I mean, just one year, just one year after uh, the failure of Lehman Brothers, there's a varying tendency and sense that financial actors that have survived the firestorm are getting back to their previous behaviors patterns. The gold-plated bonus seems to have returned. So in the industry, they are trying to rewrite history, blaming the regulators for jealously guarding their competences and not working together. Greenspan's first me culpa in Congress has now been replaced by an experienced blaming of human nature. He said just last month, quote, the crisis will happen again, but it will be different. That is the unquenchable cap capability of human beings, unquote. So the conclusion, according to, to him, Greenspan, should be that it's human nature, and so the logic goes, trying to prevent a financial crisis in future is futile. Have you read the book Animal Instinct, which is a new one coming up from the colleague to, uh, to Joseph Stiglitz, who also got the Nobel Prize? He's developing the, the animal instinct as a new parameter going into explaining the behaviors, but his conclusion is the opposite. Even if we have human beings' animal instinct, uh, that's why we need to regulate. So my point is, there may be, there may be human greediness and I can confirm that, but that's not, that's not the explanation not to do anything. As for policymakers, we are seeing some signs of regulatory nationalism in Europe, which could hamper the push for regulation. These factors combine to create a real risk of regulatory capture, as described by Nobel Prize winner George Stigler in his seminal work, Theory of Economic Regulation. We already see the signs of this, the City of London is fighting hard to avoid EU regulation. I can just tell you, I was there recently, and, and certainly I can confirm that to you. They're fighting really hard, really hard. I'm not saying they're winning, but they are fighting hard. Uh, European policymakers have never seen a more aggressively lobbying campaign as the one launched by the hedge fund and private equity fund industry 
against the proposed Alternative Investment Fund Managers Directive. I was one of those who worked heavily to reach that point. You may recall that in the European Parliament last year, uh, we made a report, a report called the, the Rasmussen Report. Uh, I'm Rasmussen one, don't confuse me with the two others we have had in my country. But, but this report was, was, was quite interesting in the sense that on the one hand, of course, there was a lot of compromises because for me, it was fundamental to get a broad majority behind this report about regulating hedge funds and private equity. Therefore, I used a lot of time to negotiate with the EPP, with the conservative biggest group in the European Parliament, a lot of time. And at the end of the day, we managed to make a report which, which was reasonably um, operational. The first point, which I think is fundamental, is in very clear text, there's an agreement between uh, the Conservatives and the Social Democrats in the Parliament that it should be a regulation with no exceptions. Everyone should be included. All financial players should be included in regulation. If you have something, someone outside, then it's like water, it's just running uh, the way. So that was number one. Number two was a common uh, agreement that leverage have gone too far in a number of cases that we need to regulate excessive leverage tendencies. The third point was also as a common agreement that we need to create transparency on that market. Highly inspired by Joseph Stiglitz's Nobel Prize where he documented the asymmetric information trends on our actual financial markets. And, and the next one was that we combined all these claims to the industry, the ones I mentioned, uh, plus also the capital requirement thing, but all these claims we combined with a new offer to them, based on rights and obligations, you could say. We said, listen, friends, you will have access to the whole of the European Union because we want to create a financial market, a, you could say a single financial market, and if we could do it, I think it would be to the, to the preference uh, of the real economy. A single financial European market, transparent, cost-effective, competitive. If we could do that, you will have access to that whether you are situated in city or in Frankfurt or whatever you are. If you fulfill these conditions, in other way, we are giving you a passport which gives you access to the whole of the European Union so that you don't have to live up to 27 different sets of regulations. We make a common set of regulation, and you can have your entry pass point in each and every country you're living in, but you are getting access to the whole of the European Union, 500 billion inhabitants and the biggest economy in the world, 10% bigger than the United States of America. So the idea was you're getting access, but you have to behave and you have to respect the direction of the European Union, that we are going to be the most knowledgeable economy in the world, the most competitive one, based on knowledge and based on cohesion, the Lisbon uh, line, as, as the major basis. I still think it's an excellent idea, and I still think that's the way to go. But there's a long way to go ahead of us when I look at the resistance of the industry. So the FSA have made or, or rather take an initiative to a new assessment of this directive proposal from the European Union, because you should understand that the mechanics goes like the following, just if you go into the European Union. The report I made with this broad compromise 
was a so-called legislative report, which is demanding a qualified majority in the parliament. That means an absolute majority of all the number of seats. If you can get that, then there's a specific pressure upon the commission. In a legislative report, the commission must live up to a, rele a, a relevant response, which means that we could go to Barroso and saying, listen, commission president, now we have created this report and you have to transform this report to a concrete proposal. Inside the commission, there was a heavy, heavy debate between those who were against recreation and Barroso who, in a sense, well, he wanted to be re-elected, didn't he? So he listened carefully to what was this majority saying in the parliament. And we, of course, could be tempted from time to time to say to him, well, if you want to be re-elected, Mr. Barroso, you have to listen to the parliament. That's how the play goes from time to time. But he was pressing for regulation. And uh, Mr. McCreevy, the Irish commissioner who's, who was working with this one, was opposing. So in a four to five month period, there was the one peak debate in the parliament after the other between Mr. Barroso and some of us, including myself, Mr. McCreevy, lots of communication and open letters back and forwards. But at the end of the day, the pressure was so high on the commission that they came out, they came out with this proposal on regulating um, uh, managers of private uh, capital pools. Uh, as we call it, uh, the Alternative Investment Fund Managers Directive. I just go into this picture to, to describe to you what the process is like, because this is how you can make politics at the European level if, if you understand the process and which, which players you should make your reform with. Okay, the Commission made the proposal. Um, I have some, some, some criticism of that one. There's uh, at least eight or ten loopholes in this proposal. They are too weak on, on uh, transparency. It's not systematic, it's not regular, so that the public authorities and supervisory bodies can get uh, a basis for assessment on what's going on. And I must say that the threshold for the size of the funds uh, which have to respect these regulations are simply too high, uh, very, very high thresholds which means that you don't have to be a, a first-degree fund manager to split your funds into three smaller ones to climb below these thresholds. Uh, and third one is that the capital requirements, they are simply ridiculous if you go into it and see how it is. On the deposit side, I think uh, he's close to the commission, uh, Paroso, he's close to what we propose. And that's also one of the points which City and Frankfurt are criticizing most of it. On, uh, on the leverage, unfortunately here, uh, uh, the directive is very, very weak. Uh, we need to have stronger, stronger um, uh, control on avoiding excessive leverage because you all know that excessive leverage and excessive risk taking have been one of, of the most dangerous keys uh, which created this, this crisis. So what I'm trying to say is that this proposal from the commission Number one, it was an enormous progress uh, step forward. On the other hand, there was loopholes and there still are. Now, looking at the reaction pattern, I was astonished to see how hard it was and how, uh, how uncompromised it was. Now, we have seen the report initiated from the FSA here in London, where uh, they asked uh, a company to make a so-called assessment of the directive. 
I'm astonished one more time. I've got the chance to look at this report, and I can only say it's biased, and, and it's, uh, it's non-comprehensive. And uh, if, you want, if you want to make an assessment of real costs, do you start and do you only ask the usual suspects, or do you ask someone else also? My point is that the only ones who were asked about the costs for this directive, that was the hedge fund industry and the private equity. They didn't ask someone in the Oxford University, I tell you. They should have done, but they didn't. And my second point is, if you ask the usual suspect, uh, you should be careful on what you ask for and how you ask. Let me give you an example. Uh, the investor side are saying, uh, Mr. Rasmussen, if you make this report regulation come true in practice, uh, some of the offshore hedge funds and private equity, offshore means outside Europe, some of the managers in US or Japan, they will not any longer be customers to investors in Europe, so that the investors in Europe, they cannot invest in, in the offshore managing funds in the same way as they can today. And the argument goes like this, if they cannot do that, then they are losing some revenues and the cost will be immense. When I looked into this one, I, I observed that, that the reason why they can't come out with, with extremist costs due to this directive in this way is that they simply in this report assume a specific behavior from the investor side. They say, okay, if the investor cannot invest in two American hedge funds, which he or her would like to do, then he will in, invest in the second best performing uh, manager here in Europe. So the laws will be obvious between the best and the second best, right? And that goes for the products also. I'm just saying, how come? Do you really believe that these investors are naive people? These investors are professional, and they of course would optimize their investments under, under these circumstances. No one would claim that a professional investor was, would just go for the second best if he can't get the best in that same industry. He would, of course, say, where do I optimize my investment and money in a much broader scale? And the second in information to you is, I have read all these reports, all these pages, and I don't see one single reference to the point that we have de facto a financial crisis. Not one. And I don't see any reference to the losses which pension funds have had during this financial crisis. And I don't see any, any, any reference to the losses in the real economy due to this crisis. So I'm just asking silently, one of the reasons why we want this regulation is to avoid that we're going to have this crisis one more time. Why doesn't that play any role in, 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 in this report? And why don't they tell anything about how many hedge funds went down now, defaulted? So what I'm saying is that this report is surprisingly um, uh, biased. And, and uh, I think they should give it another try. I've said publicly, I would not invest one euro in this report. So my response is this. We should be assessing the costs to the economy of the malfunction of these funds. Compliance costs for better regulation would pale in comparison. Unfortunately, similarly, in the United States of America, you see banks lobbying against the creation of a consumer protection agency and the establishment of uh, basic rules to prevent predatory mortgage lending. 
Maybe I shouldn't mention that in this famous uh, university here, but you, you need to, to know the whole picture. This is about politics also. You know, some policymakers are particularly vulnerable to this hard industry lobbying because of the huge sums they have accepted in donations. I'm forced to say that. I ask myself why on earth the mayor of London was so busy in Brussels in telling us how bad this regulation would be for, for London and for, for many, many other people. I couldn't understand it. I mean, after all, a mayor of London, he have a busy day, and should he really spend that much time in Brussels? So I begin to look upon who's financing his election budget. And I came to the result that 77% of the mayor of London, Boris Johnson's election campaign, was financed by hedge funds last year. And he is now the most prominent opponent of EU financial regulation. You can draw your conclusions yourself. I'm only saying it's hard time. And I want to add that hedge funds and private equity firms, just that, that I've opened my heart to you, I have financed the Conservative Party to the tune of over three million pounds in the first six months of this year. That's 55% of all the monies they have donated it since 2001. It's not new because you see it in US also. Even if you take the Democratic Party, the Democrats received massive donations from the industry in 2008. Commercial banks gave over $17 million, hedge funds over $11 million, and private equity over $14 million. So the politics of regulation is immense in the murky waters of campaign finance. Nevertheless, I'm still optimistic that we can win this fight for the new global order of financial regulation. Financial regulation is no longer the domain of experts. It has taken center stage in the political debate on how to safeguard the public interest. Political outrage against the financial sector will not subside as long as unemployment rises and stagnant growth threatens the financing of our welfare state. So in a sense, you can say that, unfortunately, this crisis in the real economy is our best ally to get regulated the financial sector. I hope it won't be long. I hope it will be quick, but I'm just giving you this point. Recent shocking bonus payments does not make the case uh, weaker. Uh, so here we go. So what, in my opinion, is the new global order we need? Let's start off with the purpose of new financial regulation. I have two. The one is the principal purpose is to prevent a new financial crisis happening again. The never again must be our ambition. So that financial stability has to be at the center that's why I also support the point made by the governor of, of uh, Bank of England saying that, that the discussion about the size of bank being too big to fail is a moral hazard. And I agree with the point that why couldn't we separate the investment wings of the activity from the normal boring, if you like, banking activities? I think we should. So instead of falling into the trap to discuss how big could a bank be to, be to fail, we could say, well, it's time to separate these activities if we want to ensure ourselves better in the future. Anyhow, I think the governor today have a point in, 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 in the journal saying that we must reduce the number of ordinary people and business, so many thousand being so dependent on only three or four big banks. That's simply not sustainable. 
So we must move into a, 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 a more competitive environment and an environment less vulnerable. The second point is that, as I said, the financial markets must be the servant of the real economy, not the master. That's about long-term financing. Can I only say that the two most important investment objects we have decided in the European Union, namely, one, to be the most competitive knowledge economy in the world on an inclusive basis, two, to realize our packets on the climate change, these two democratic decided long-term goals for the Union, these two cost per piece about one trillion euros. And if it's long-term investments and it's one trillion euro, you can easily understand it's a huge amount of money. And when I look upon the financial market and see, do we have here natural financial actors who could go into a, and help us realizing this goal, I see some obstacles. Now, the principles behind the new financial regulation must therefore be, number one, covering all actors, be comprehensive. Uh, the risk of regulatory arbitrage is too great otherwise. Number two, regulating and regulation should be equivalent to ensure a level playing field and high prudential standards amongst all financial actors, notably between banking and shadow banking sectors, as I just uh, implied, uh, referring to, to Mervyn King's point. The third one is transparency. Transparency must be at the core of new regulation. Without this regulation and supervision uh, cannot be effective. This is the only way to see whether innovations in the financial system bear systemic risks or not. It also followed from this one that, that I agree in Lord Turner's point that if the consequences of stronger claims on transparency, on level playing fields, on countercyclical uh, regulation, on uh, conflicts of interest and so on, if the consequences will be a little smaller industry in London, I would say we can live with this. Because as Lord Turner said, part of the activities are social useless. And, and we need also here to be consequent and understanding that the dynamics of this wonderful society of United Kingdom is not all focused in London City. What counts is the interplay and what counts is the inclusiveness of, of, of all people. Number four is regulating uh, 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 the cyclicality in the system. This crisis showed once again the inherent pro-cyclicality of the markets and the inequality of instruments like monetary policy to control them. We need a new generation of counter-cyclical measures from the national to the European and global levels, notably capital requirements. And let me just develop this point a little further on. I think that we need capital requirements which in good times means that they are stronger, that in bad times where we must have some understanding that you can you can soften your capital requirements if you have, you have crisis times or you have slow growth times. But I also think that our capital requirements should be related to the risk taking of a specific banks. In other way, the more risky you behave, the higher the claims on the capital requirements should be. And I also think that there should be a nuanced set of claims to big banks compared to smaller banks. In other way, uh, we could and must look into how could we create this capital requirement in such a way that it's counter-cyclical, 
that is dampening the risk-taking, that is also inspiring the big banks to behave uh, in a better way than they've done in the past. Executive pay and remuneration should reflect long-term performances. The bonus culture should reflect, again, the real economy uh, in a symmetric way, which means that when your company don't behave as bad, as good, this should be seen on your bonus payments also and the other way around. Conflict of interest have to be eradicated. That includes regulating credit rating agencies. And we must, number, number, number seven, limit it, uh, we must limit our excessive leverage. This is not an easy thing to do. If we go into uh, the private equity industry, for instance, first, you will see that, that the private equity, especially the leveraged buyout funds, when they compose their portfolios of private companies, uh, if you go in there, you will see that there's an inbuilt tendency in their business model to leverage these companies. You could say that the degree of leveraging a portfolio company is direct combined with the performance on the net return. How is that? It's easy because, because what, you, what you compare is in percentage your return compared to your own capital. And the lesser your own capital is with a given return, uh, the higher your performance are. That's why the leverage, uh, that's why foreign capital brought into the company instead of old capital of its own is, is in artificially increasing your return. So in a highly competitive environment on private equity fund managers, you can easily understand that the more you can, you can put debt, make debt push downs on your portfolio companies, the quicker you can change your own capital with foreign debt, uh, the higher you can, you can present your return. That is, that is the, major, the major challenge in the business model for private equity as I see it. So, in my mind, there's two types of regulation you should go into. The one is trying to make some caps on how much you could leverage a, a portfolio company. What is that, Paul? Is that 5% or 10 or what is it? I don't think so, but I would invite everybody to go into it, not least people here in Oxford. Uh, one, 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 may, one may use a, a, uh, one of the well-known tools. Uh, is it an ongoing concern? How, how much could you leverage your portfolio company to still insist that your, your company is alive, it's functioning? Could we develop a sort of standardization? Would it be enough to take some, some, some marks, some landmarks? We can say not more than this. It's, it's a good question. We have to work further on it, but something has to be done. Also because if you look at the facts, you will see that last year, I saw uh, an analysis made by, was it Bloomberg or was it Barclays, I don't recall right now, but they showed that 55% of, I think it was around 75 companies from the portfolio side which have defaulted due to um, the strengthening of, of the credit and the rise, the increase in the interest rate, 55% uh, of all these defaulted companies were coming from private equity ownership. And that's easy to understand. And if you take the corporate bond loan markets, you will see that, that in recent year, um, more than half of the corporate bond lo loan market have been, have been uh, rated now for B minus. And if we try to track down these corporate bond loans to 
portfolio companies, you could see that an impressively high part of these corporate loans uh, do relate to portfolio companies which have been owned or are owned by private equity. So upholding these principles will be a matter for very detailed regulatory proposals you can e e easily see. Now, I'd like just to present a few key elements before I close, if I, do I have five minutes more? Let me, let me just go a bit, a bit into the matter. Number one is, how do we get to a global uh, governance? How do, how do we get it global? Could I warn you about a temptation here? There are those who say, well, you cannot do anything before you're getting the ideal construction at the global level. Let's wait for the Basel III, and let's see how much we can do on hedge funds, private equity, and other private capital pools in international uh, negotiations in the IMF or whatever it may be. Can I say, this is a trap as I see it. My life is too short to wait that long. So that's why I'm saying that in politics and in, in our aim of obtaining a regulation, I think what's in focus is the process from now until that global level. Which way are we going to, to choose and, and how are we going to do it? That's where my converging roadmaps comes in. I think we, we must understand that financial regulation has up to now been mostly a national affair. International standard setters, such as the previous Financial Stability Forum, now the board, did not have any power to ensure compliance. The Basel regime was not uniformly implemented, but as the crisis show, the national governments is totally mismatched uh, with the extreme global interconnections of the financial markets. What can we do? I propose a two-step procedure. The first step in the short run is the converging roadmaps. We need that the US, the European Union, and Japan. You have seen the new landslide victory in Japan, which have created a new government, which is really, really, really going into this matter here. I'm very impressed. On the regulatory side, on the green side, the climate side, it's very promising from my point of view. What I see is that those three players, major players, maybe also China, develop their roadmaps on regulation, but in a very coordinated and a very converging uh, matter. So that, that the farther we go on these matters, the closer we come to each other, and, and in some time we can, we can make the common global regulation. I think in, a very, in, a very, in quite many years, you will have some common regulation, first and foremost from the Basel uh, Center, and you will have some fundamentals, but when it comes to the details, you will have in a couple of years at least, uh, specifics in Europe, specific in US, and specifics in Japan. You must recall that, that the way they regulate in the United States, that's, that's detailed regulation. The way we regulate, that's principal regulation. And the way they do is supervisory, observing the bad guys, taking them into jail to be a little popular. The way we do it is to regulate the behavior uh, by directives and then implementations in the national legislation. The good story is that the G20 process has already enabled this converging roadmap strategy to some extent. Converging roadmaps allow us to act quickly and effectively to prevent a return to business as usual. Second point, about Europe. I think we are moving in the right direction on what I call financial supervision. 
We need to catch up. We need to make it stronger. But the major design is not that bad. If you take uh, the European Union's uh, European Systemic Risk Board, what they propose here is that the 27 uh, national bank governors go together with the ECB, the European Central Bank, Jean-Claude Trichet, and they, 28 people, keep a close eye on how all the national uh, banks behave and how the monetary markets in all the 27 member countries behave. They define, they identify, and they prioritize all macro financial risks. They issue warnings and give recommendations. They monitor the follow-up of risk warnings. All this is good and necessary. Problem, if Lithuania don't care, they don't care. So they, they, they are not having enforcing power to ensure that they are advised, quote-unquote, that this is actually followed. And here we have a loophole. Compare it to the Growth and Stability Pact within the European Monetary Union. There, I can tell you, if you don't behave, there's a lot of instruments which, which are on the follow-up side to, to punish you if you don't behave, right? So my point is, if you can do it on the global the growth and growth and stability pact, you can do it on, on this one also. The second, that's the microprudential. Uh, the European system for financial supervisor, supervisors, that's a micro uh, supervisory thing. It's based on four pillars. What you establish at the European level is representatives from all the 27 countries, and they keep an eye on the micro side on four pillars. The one is the banks, the second is the insurance companies, the third is the institutional investors, including pension funds. And the last one is some part of the real estate. They try to move towards a single rule book. They ensure harmonized supervisory practices so that if some of the national supervisory boards are too weak, they tell them, please keep an eye on this or that. They are strengthening the oversight of cross-border groups, and they are establishing a central European database aggregating all micro-potential informations. So, again, they don't have power to follow up if they don't care. So we need, again, to, to put this missing link into the system, otherwise I fear it will not function. The system's effectiveness would all depend on the agency's powers. Regulatory nationalism still means that there is still no clear European resolution mechanism for big cross-border banks' failures. Where do you go in? Where do you behave? Where do you belong? Right. So, in a sense, insisting that we have our national competence and nobody should take that away from us is the same as saying, hereby we have decided that they can begin to take it away from us. Because the cross-border banking cannot be regulated by ourselves alone without doing it together with the others. So the interesting thing is, dear students, that this regional level of governance is just taking shape now, but it should still be stepping stones to, towards more enforcement, and it should be a very clear step, stepping stone to, towards global, global governance. I think um, I would be attractive of proposing to you tonight a whole new body called World Financial Organization with the same, with the same competences at the WTO, for instance. That would be a wonderful world where you could have intervention mechanisms at the global level as the, the, the WTO have. But I must confess that it will not be uh, that easy. So why don't we go alongside with strengthening the IMF, uh, getting the standards, plugging regulatory gaps, 
uh, enforcing and, 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 and creating sanctions connected to the IMF. I see small signs that it's moving in that direction. Alone the simple fact that the G20 could agree on moving 5% voting rights from the richer world to the emerging countries. It's not much, but it's a starter. And I know that Dominique Strauss-Kahn now, the managing director of IMF, he's so heavily involved in reforming this IMF institution that I feel, in a sense, obliged on behalf of the Europeans, uh, progressives, to say, well, let's support this reform process and let's try to reinforce the G20 along the line I just described. Last point, uh, Basel III. I think regulatory capture was at work since the mid-1990s in the design of capital regulation. But the funny thing was that the banks themselves influenced that regulation as they themselves determined regulatory capital on the basis of their own quantitative risks models. So the usual suspect was asked to regulate themselves in a sense. And that meant, of course, that the Basel II was a voluntary code in practice. Which, of course, also meant that the interpretation of Basel II was, was very diff different from, from place to place. Thus, financial stability has to be put at the heart of a new Basel III. Counter-cyclical potential policy is needed to control credit expansion. All systematically important financial institutions should be covered. Instruments must be, be strengthened. And I had, to your info, uh, just a... Um, a long meeting with Hakin Almunia, the Commissioner for Economics. And the way he presented at a meeting we had recently in Brussels, uh, his agenda for uh, regulating the banks was very, very promising, I must say. It was very close to what I have been describing here. So what I'm trying at the end to say to you is that I'm still optimist, uh, but not an naive one. And, and if we want to regulate in a good way, we should be very, very, very smart, work very, very hard, ensure that we are capable of communicating to ordinary people what we're doing, and really, really capable of making political uh, networking. The last point about networking is that when I look upon the continent, I feel still that, that in France and in Germany, there is a, a robust understanding of regulation. I hope and I wish this would be the case also in UK. It's a case uh, here in Oxford, I realize, but Oxford is not the same as city, as you know. I hope that the, the argument can make, can, can make the case. Uh, and then at the end, just to provoke you a bit, uh, dear students, we need a financial transaction tax. We do. I was prime minister at the time when, when, uh, when uh, we had United Nations um, Summit for Social Affairs in Copenhagen. And there was one, one president who stood up, that was Francois Mitterrand. He stood up and he said, well, why don't we realize the Tobin tax? And there was silence afterwards. Nobody said anything. I tried to say as the chair of that UN summit, that was a good idea. But I didn't, because I looked at the body language of all the others, and after all, I, I did, do, did want to have a good conclusion. But what I want to say to you now as, this, as the last point, go into it. Uh, I have been working very hard with the transaction tax in Brussels. Three think tanks have been involved. We have worked with the Austrians, with the Australians, 
with the best minds you can have in Europe. And we have now, I assure you, a well-documented proposal for transaction tax. It's backed up by the Austrian government. It will be backed up by the Greek government. Uh, it is backed up by the Australians. And if you look at the Doha UN round recently this summer, they are proposing it directly. It's uh, a part on the agenda of the G20 if you read the text a bit progressive, right? But my fundamental point is that, that you should not fill into the loopholes the Tobin tax did by saying, let's separate the cross-border financial transaction from the national transaction. Don't do that. It's all inclusive now. Second point, you should not exclude some products and say, we will not go into that. It should be all inclusive also on the product side. And by the way, we have already the transaction tax. You have the stamp tax here in, in UK. They have transaction tax all over the places, focused on some products on the financial market. But what I'm trying to say to you is, transaction tax is not something we just pick out of the air. It's there. And now we know how to do it. If you make a financial transaction tax on all financial transactions, including those mechanic uh, uh, short-selling uh, procedures which hedge funds make, they make thousands of, of machine uh, mathematical buy and sellings per day, thousands of them. And that beef up, of course, the whole volume of transactions. If you include such, such transaction in your transaction tax and, and you just say, due to the massive volume, you can, you can make a very small transaction. If we take the following, 0.05% right, of the volume of transaction. That's one half or one tenth of a percentage. If you do that, Calculation shows us that this could, in the German economy, the biggest in Europe, finance more than half of the deficit of the actual public finances in Germany. So talking about burden sharing and talking on the middle road about financing uh, in a solidaristic way the developing countries and emerging countries to come out of this financial crisis, I just say to you there are huge, huge possibilities in this financial transaction tax. Here we go. I talked too long. I hope you'll forgive me. Thank yeah, you very much. Thank you.